Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the chance we have this morning to come together, even though we are part to worship and to look at your word. And Lord, we thank you for our grandparents, the, the grace they are to us, uh, how they are one of your gifts to us. And I pray that they would be encouraged this morning by the peace that we find in Christ. Lord, in a, in a world that is going through so much, I, I pray that that simple truth would take deep root in our hearts. The true peace is found in Jesus. He is the one who offers enduring hope. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for that hope. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take this time and welcome the grandparents who are joining us. Usually we would have you stand so everyone in the service uh, could recognize you and thank you. Now, obviously, we can't really do that today, but if you'd like to stand, we're definitely not stopping you. Just imagine a crowd of people cheering for you. But I really do want to thank you for joining us. It's a grace to share with you this morning. And as you likely know, it really is a blessing to your family that you've taken the time to spend with us. When I was uh, talking to my family about this Sunday, I mentioned that I hope to kind of keep the message a little bit shorter. And my youngest son asked, is that so they don't fall asleep? But I, w I wasn't sure if he was uh, making a comment about your age or my preaching. I'm pretty sure it was my preaching. But that being said, in the past on Grandparents Sunday, we have talked about uh, investing in the next generation or raising kids and grandkids or leaving a legacy that matters. But we thought this morning, in light of the current state of our country and, and really the world, that it'd be good to talk about what it means to have peace and a heart of rest in a time of instability. We really are in unprecedented times. And I'm guessing even if you are a grandparent, and so you've lived, lived a little bit longer than most, you've seen a little bit more than most, even you would still say that this is a challenging time. We have a worldwide pandemic, racial unrest in our country, an unstable economy, a coming contentious election, raging wildfires, and a future that is largely unknown, even more than usual, meaning that it seems harder than ever to be at peace and find contentment. I mean, how can you have peace while watching or reading the news and, and seeing what is happening around us every day? How can you feel secure when, when finances seem so unstable? How can you have a rested heart knowing there's a virus going around that actually threatens lives? Maybe even more simply, how can you really be happy when you can't see your grandkids like you would like to, can't go out to eat or take a vacation? And it doesn't have to be COVID related, but how can you really be content when work is such a bear or you have financial hardships or you're going through relational difficulties? I mean, right now, can you even imagine what it would be like to have a quiet heart in such a crazy world. And by quiet, I mean like at peace, not obsessed, not anxious or worried, not irritated or frustrated or angry, not discontent or discouraged. Well, to see how it is possible to have peace even during a pandemic, we're gonna look at Psalm 131. It's one of the shortest chapters in all of scripture. A psalm was part of the poetry of the Bible. It was meant to lead Israel and us in the worship of God in part because it, te it teaches us about God. But one of the reasons I chose this psalm is because its author, King David, also lived his whole life in a time of instability. And yet this, this psalm describes a heart that's really at peace. Pastor Tim once described King David in Psalm 131 this way, King David's life was marked by pressure, heartache, outrage, fear, adultery, murder, and betrayal. 
There was never a time in David's life when someone didn't want to kill him. On the outside, his life was crazy and chaotic, but here we see that his heart is calm. So listen as I read the psalm, just three verses. David writes this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within in me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Right, it's, it's a beautiful psalm that revolves around the simple illustration of a child at peace because he is with his mother. And so David is arguing that despite what is going on around us, we can be like contented children if, as it says in verse 3, we hope in the Lord. And that leads us to our key idea. A peaceful heart comes from a humble heart that hopes in Christ. So whereas our, our circumstances are pretty crazy right now, because we hope in Christ, we can have hearts at peace. Now this may sound like typical Christian talk, right? You just need to trust in Jesus. But stay with me, because I think as we dive into this, you'll see why Christ really does offer enduring peace. So let's look at two truths to encourage peace in a pandemic. Point number one, a peaceful heart starts with humility. A peaceful heart starts with humility. Now, before we, we jump into it, notice that David says this is about the heart. Biblically, the heart is not just emotions like the world might say, but really it's, it's meant to describe who you are, your thoughts, your will, your emotions, your morals. But David's point is that peace is really about what happens inside of us, not outside of us. I mean, look at what David says in verse 1. My heart is not lifted up. And then in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul. The point being, no matter what is happening around us, we can be at peace if things are right within us. Right? The difficulties of life do not create our restless hearts. Rather, anxiousness and discontentment are, are the products of hearts that are more focused on the world than they are on Christ. Back to our text. Okay, so David begins with the heart, and specifically he points out the necessity of a heart that is humble before God. Now, often when, when things are, are challenging, we focus on what we can do to survive or thrive, who we are. But look at what David says in verse 1. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So David doesn't begin with who he is. He begins with what he isn't. He isn't going to fall back on being a king or rely on his, his great wealth or his armies. He acknowledges that he needs help, that, that there are things beyond him. Now, before we look at, at how this humility then leads to a rest at heart, let me begin by saying that humility here isn't what the world often describes as humble, right? Especially in the Asian culture where humility is about not bragging, not appearing conceited, about not talking about yourself too much. But that really is focused on appearing humble, not on actually being humble. I'm sure all of you know people who are, are outwardly humble, but really as proud as anyone in their hearts. Biblically, humility is about seeing yourself as God sees you. It's about dependence on God and living in light of who he is. It's about being desperate for grace. Maybe I could summarize it this way, as described in Psalm 131. Biblical humility is living for God by living dependent on God. So let's break, out, break that down into two ideas. First, A in your notes, Humility is living for God. Verse 1, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. The, the word here, lifted up, has to do with exalting oneself. One lexicon says it's to be overly confident in one's greatness or worth. 
So David is making the simple point. There, there's this restlessness of the heart that comes from exalting yourself. Now, we, often, we, don't, we don't often use the words of the psalmist here, like likely you aren't, even, you aren't saying or even thinking, hey, I need to be exalted. So let me put it in more common terms. I need to succeed. I need to get ahead at work. I need to win. I need to ace my test. I need to help my kids be successful. I need to make more money. I need to achieve, accomplish, prosper, thrive. Maybe for our purposes this morning, I want my grandkids to be the cutest or best behaved or to have the nicest things. But this is dangerous. Maybe we could summarize the idea simply like this. An anxious heart comes because we live for the wrong things. Think of this way. Imagine your kid or grandkid is really into basketball. I mean, just lives for it. They have dreams of being uh, the first five foot six inch star in the NBA. But then they have a a devastating knee injury and their short-lived career is over. As you can imagine, they would be angry or anxious, discouraged, maybe even depressed. And you hear them say things like, I'm, I'm nothing, I, I don't know what to do with myself, I have nothing to live for. So what would you say to them? Would you tell them, it's, it's true, life is pretty much over because ball is life? Of course not, right? You would probably remind them that there are more important things in life. You would understand that, that the reason they are worried or discontent or unhappy is because they are living for the wrong things. Now, now the world would say, well, okay, basketball is nice, but education is really important. Or getting a good, well-paying, respectable job is something that really matters. But understand that for many, getting a good job is is often simply the grown-up version of living for basketball. In the end, ultimately, it's still living for yourself. Or as David put it, it's exalting yourself. So understand, the restlessness of life isn't simply a product of the challenges around us. It is the sea of pressure that we have chosen to swim in. The problem isn't busyness. It's that we have chosen to busy ourselves with the wrong things. The problem isn't pressure. It's that we have chosen to make more important what is less important. What then is the problem? That we have chosen to commit our lives uh, to our own exaltation. We're living for the wrong things. Does this make sense why something like COVID then could create such discontentment and restlessness? Because it attacks the very things we live for. It attacks the security we find in our health or our jobs or our finances. It attacks the contentment we find in our activities and vacations. It even attacks some of the simple joys like eating out and spending time with loved ones. So what is the solution? How can we be humble? We must live for something bigger than ourselves, something with greater meaning and significance. We must live for something not so easily attacked by a microscopic virus. Now we'll discuss this in the next point, and and sorry for the spoiler, but the answer, of course, is God. You wouldn't expect me to say anything other than God, but at the same time, understand, it's more than we, we should live for him, but that we were made to live for him. Remember, He made us. This is his world. He is the great and loving king. I mean, something David understood amidst the chaos of his world was was that there was something greater than himself. Despite the fact that he was the the king, there was a greater king. Understand, the world is is constantly in turmoil because they live for lesser things, things that can easily be attacked by a microscopic virus, things that can be uh, affected by a faltering economy, things that can be hurt by various trials and sufferings. But because we live for God, 
who is never affected by the world but only in control over it, we don't have to worry. We don't have to be upset at the challenges we face. So how do we do this? How do we live for God? We live for God by living dependent on God. And that's the second idea here, point B in your notes. Humility is living dependent on God. Back to verse 1. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, I think it would be easy to think this has to do with pursuing things that are out of our reach, things that are too complicated or too lofty. In other words, focus on the little stuff and let God take care of the big things. But David's understanding is more sweeping than that. We have to realize, apart from God, we are destitute and absolutely and completely desperate for grace. I understand that, that one of the results of sin is, is our pursuit of independence. Sin is the wrong things we do, but it's, it's more than that. It's kind of the disease that corrupts our entire being. I mean that because of sin, I will not only refuse to live for God, I'll refuse to acknowledge God. As David wrote in another psalm, Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But it is the fallen desire for freedom from God. Our sinful hearts want autonomy. We want to be free from God's rules and commands. We want to determine our way in life. We want the freedom to make choices we believe will make us happy. But understand, we are dependent creatures, meant to live in dependence on our great God. So our pursuit of independence doesn't bring happiness, just restlessness as we strive to live life on our own terms, convinced that we can achieve happiness separate from the one who is the source of all true joy. Maybe another way we could describe it is that it's the dangerous desire for control. We want to be in control of our lives. In part because we actually believe that if we are in control, then then life will go the way that we want it to, the way that we are convinced it should. So we pursue control. Convinced that if we work hard enough, then good things will happen. That if we choose the right spouse, we'll have marital bliss. That if we invest in our kids or grandkids rightly, then they will turn out successful, or at the very least, they'll be happy. That if we exercise enough and we watch exactly what we eat, that we can determine our own health, even skirting death. But do you see how this can really add a measure of restless, restlessness to your life? How it can make life stressful and difficult? When we believe the choices we make and what we do determine life, that's a lot of pressure. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's this constant heaviness as you try to do all that you can to make sure your life turns out right. Sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll get discouraged as a parent because I'll think uh, about how much I need to grow. And partar- particularly, I'll, I'll worry that, that I failed my kids in some way, that, that they'll go off the, and because of that, they'll, they'll go off the deep end. But do you see that the pressure of that kind of thinking, that my kids' lives rest in my hands? That's overwhelming. Now, I do need to grow as a parent, but our kids and grandkids are in the hands of our gracious God. And so I have to rest in that reality. Now for you, maybe it's not that you're striving for control, but you already realize that you aren't in control. And so your restlessness is because your life is, is going so differently than you'd want, and there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe because of COVID, uh, things aren't going the way that you think they should, and so your heart is burdened. Maybe it's led to difficult relationships or, or tough finances or trying to work a situation or even health problems. And so, so through it all, your heart is, is discouraged or, or discontented or even despairing. And maybe you respond, you try to fix things, or maybe you simply try to endure believing that you'll find peace on the other side of the pandemic. 
but we must be like David and not occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. In other words, we must leave control in the hands of God. We must rest in the fact that nothing is too great or marvelous for him. We must find peace in knowing that we can trust God's plan for our lives. We must have humble hearts. Point number two, a peaceful heart needs the right hope. A peaceful heart needs the right hope. And the illustration we're going to look at uh, is that of a content child uh, who, who isn't hungry. Now, I was thinking this illustration may fall a bit short in that some of you still get angry when you get hungry. Right? The term that came up for that is hangry. I looked uh, up online for definitions for hangry. Uh, it's a state of anger caused by a lack of food or hunger causing a negative change in emotional state. But I think this is my favorite. A grumpy mood caused by lack of food, such as tacos or chocolate or pizza. But despite this, this actual illustration is actually a very good one, and I'll explain why. Back to the text. So David, so David begins with humility, right? seeing how, how the pride of life is the danger to a quiet soul. But really, humility is, is really one side of a coin, the other being hope and faith. So if I'm going to turn from living for myself, from making life about me, uh, turn from placing my trust in other things, I must turn elsewhere. As David points out, if I'm going to have a rested heart, I must hope in God. Because really the question isn't whether we have hope, but what we have hope in. And too often we hope in changed circumstances. We hope in weekends and vacations. We hope in, in hitting deadlines and acing tests. In a time like this, what are you hoping for? for the safer at home to end, for, for a vaccine, for a chance to really visit your grandkids, for school to start in person. Understand that though those are good hopes, we actually must have a greater hope. And that's what David is moving us to in verses 2 and 3. Listen again as I read them. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So the picture is that of a contented child, but, but a contentment that is rooted in a hope in God. That's why David says in verse 3, hope in the Lord. There's this parallelism here. As David has experienced a calm and quieted soul through God, through hope in God, Israel should do as well. And that's why he exhorts them, hope in the Lord. Verse 2, two then is meant to be this picture of someone who hopes in, in, in God. Now before we look into this specific illustration that David uses, I want to briefly think a bit more about hope because our current usage of hope is often different than what biblical hope is. When we express hope, we often express, we're expressing some aspect of uncertainty, right? It's kind of this fearful anticipation, that desire for something to happen, but with an understanding that it might not, right? You might hope to win the lotto, or you might hope for good health, or you might hope for your team to win the championship, or you might hope that the sermon is short, but all those hopes come with a distinct and maybe even high possibility of failure. But the hope that David describes here, hope in the Lord, is the hope of certainty. The author of Hebrews describes it as the full assurance of hope. In Romans 5, Paul says, hope does not put us to shame, or some translations say, hope does not disappoint. John Piper defines this kind of biblical hope as a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. So do you see the difference between worldly hope and biblical hope in God? Desire mixed with uncertainty versus assurance. I like the way one author described it. 
the difference between kind of worldly hope and biblical hope in God is fearful anticipation versus confident expectation. Now, this is important because as we talk about hope in in the Lord from this passage, I'm not talking about fearful anticipation, desire with uncertainty. I'm talking about the confident expectation that God is who he says he is and that he'll be faithful to his promises. So here's the idea I want you to remember from this point. Hope offers a rested heart because it focuses on the right relationship, not the right circumstances. Okay, so if our hope is in circumstances, they will fail us and our hearts will be restless. But if our hope is in the Lord, we can rest assured that that he will be faithful and we can trust in him. So again, real hope is about a relationship. As David illustrates what it means that he has calmed and quieted his soul, he offers the picture of a contented child with his mother. Now, we picture a weaned child as pretty young, but it's important to remember a bit of cultural context here. In the time that David is writing, the weaning process would be much later than, than, than what happens in our culture, maybe four or five years old. So right away, some of you ladies are reminded of the grace of of not living back then. But I point this out because we don't want to simply picture an infant that still cries when it's hungry, only to be satisfied with some food. Think more uh, of a young child with with greater capacity to reason, who is convinced that his mother will take care of him. Now, this being said, the illustration still might uh, seem a bit odd, because often the idea of being like a child is equated with immaturity and foolishness and even bad behavior. Right? If, if, if someone were to say, hey, my coworkers are, are a bunch of kids, that's not a compliment. If you were to say, my husband sits on the couch like a giant infant, it's not a compliment. Well, one of the favorite expressions my brother and, brothers and I used for each other was, uh, you big baby. Okay, again, not a compliment. And by the way, when, when I say used, I mean like used this week. But actually, this is an effective illustration because it, it means that the rested heart that comes through hope isn't primarily about maturity or independence or skill or knowledge of facts. It's first about a relationship. Does that make sense? David doesn't say, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a mature mature and well-thought-out person. He specifically says, like a weaned child with its mother. So what does this mean? The key to a rested heart isn't to hope in circumstances, it's to hope in our Savior. It isn't about pursuing diversions but pursuing a deeper relationship with our Lord. It isn't about being less busy, but more familiar with Christ. Like I mentioned earlier, our temptation is to think that a rested heart is a result of good circumstances. If safer at home would end, if I could find a good job, if my grandkids turn out okay, if they find a vaccine, then I will be happy. But I'm sure you realize this by now, circumstances will fail us. And the reason is, like, like we mentioned earlier, we live in a fallen world that's messed up by sin. We should assume sorrow and suffering. We should assume busyness and brokenness. We should assume difficult people and difficult situations. So instead, we must look to someone that is not subject to the fallenness of our world. One who is not simply above circumstances, but in control of them. One that not only offers contentment, but is the source of it. One who not only authors our story, but entered into our story to make us his own. For David, he understands that hope is about a relationship with his Lord. David's life, quite simply, was crazy and chaotic. It it is the stuff movies are made of. It involved giants and epic battles, adultery and murder, family strife and tragic loss. But in all this, where would David turn? To his God. 
he would hope in him. He would have this absolute confident expectation that God would be faithful. And so his soul was at rest. So understand, if, if your soul is going to be at rest, you must hope in the Lord. You must look beyond the ever-changing situations and look to your Savior. You must find hope in your relationship with him. So here it is. True hope only comes in Christ. <clears throat> if you're visiting us online, we're so thankful but, uh, that you've come. But, but understand that though it's possible to have moments of peace here on earth, true eternal peace only comes through Christ. Earlier I mentioned that God made us. And he made us to, to live not only dependent on him, but in this joyful relationship with him. But the problem is that each of us is a sinner. We, we do wrong things. I've yet to meet the person who refuses to acknowledge that, that idea. And you may think, well, okay, you're not a, a bad person. But I'm hoping you would at the very least acknowledge that you're not perfect. But understand, our, our sin actually is a very big deal. Our sin is an affront to this holy and this perfect God. And so every time we sin, we're, we're living as rebels against the one who made us. And with this will come judgment and punishment. Take that in for a sec. Whether you live to 18 or to 80, each of us will stand before God one day and give an answer for our lives. And be assured in that moment, when, when all is revealed, when we stand before the creator of the universe in all his glory, we will be as certain as everyone that we are guilty. I mean, just imagine though, much of the world could not care less about God, even living as if he doesn't exist. But do you see what this would mean to the one who made them? Now, this brings us again to the topic of hope. Because when, when, it, when it comes to hope uh, about what happens when we die, the, the afterlife or whatever you want to call it, realize the world has its hopes. Some hope that their, their lives will be good enough, that they have done more, bad, more, more good than bad. Some hope in some form of, of religion, like Buddhist ritual or, or, or whatnot. Some hope and believe with sincere hearts there is no God. And death is just the end of existence. But as you well know, it is possible to have false hopes. There are people who think that, that winning the lotto is a viable way to get out of financial struggles. There are unhelpful and even dangerous coronavirus cures on the internet. There, there are plenty of commercials and advertisements that, that promise to, to make whatever problem you have go away. And even those kind of wise investments many of us make, maybe the stock market, it can still be precarious. Or just think relationally. People hope in others only to be let down. Sometimes we're let down by the people we trust the most. The same is true with matters of eternity with infinitely greater repercussions. You absolutely can have a false hope, which matters because eternity is at stake with what you believe. Maybe you've heard someone say, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. Or it doesn't matter what you hope in as long as you hope in something. I mean, can we agree this doesn't make sense? I mean, simple logic tells us that there's a right and there's a wrong. All this to say, in the middle of a worldwide pandemic and national unrest and raging forest fires, there's actually a much greater cause of worry and fear. That we will stand before God one day as sinners. So where is our hope? David gives the answer in verse 3. Hope in the Lord. For us, we must turn to Jesus. He is our only hope in this world and the next. Why? Because he came to save us. I mean, some 2,000 years ago, he entered our world, lived the perfect life we were unable to, 
and then he went to the cross to suffer the punishment for those who believe in him. In other words, I deserve punishment for my sins, but Jesus took it in my place. He was my substitute. If you're not a Christian, I'm not sure what you think about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you think of, of kind of hard to understand religious rituals, again, like Buddhism or Catholicism or, or something like that. Maybe, maybe you think of morality, and kind of following all the rules. Maybe you think of church attendance. Maybe you think of knowledge and kind of learning a lot of deep concepts. But here it is. Being a Christian means we know we are sinners deserving hell, but instead we put our faith in Jesus as our Savior, who suffered hell in our place. That's it. If you would even now decide to place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that is real hope. Hope not affected by a pandemic. Hope not subject to the circumstances of this world. Hope that speaks to, to the greatest issues of life and hope that leads to eternal life. If you don't know Christ, I, I want to encourage you to place your faith in him today. Now, he, here's the amazing thing. Christian hope isn't simply, when I die, I go to heaven. Though that would be more than we could ever ask for. But it's about real hope for the here and now. In other words, Christianity is, is not simply about hope for eternal life, but hope for everyday life. For, for example, uh, looking to, to Christ and trusting that he truly does love you means you can have hope, a confident expectation that all that is happening in your life, the challenges and even the sufferings, are part of his perfect plan to do a good work in you and a good work through you. Meaning that nothing can come into your life that hasn't been guided by God's wise and purposeful love. This doesn't mean you will always understand what God is doing, but you can trust that he's doing it in love. Consider that for a moment. Think of, of your life. Think of those things that seem to contribute to a restless heart. Think of the pandemic and safer at home and mass and bacterial, antibacterial gel. Think of, of difficult people and challenging trials. And remember this, your hope is in God and his love, and so you can rest in that. Now here's the, the kind of practical side of it. The more you know God, the more your heart will be at rest, which leads to kind of the practical application in your notes. Seek to know Christ. Not just know about him, but to really know him. First, again, if you, if you, if you aren't a Christian, I, I pray that you wouldn't fall for the idea of who really knows, we'll just wait and see. Can you imagine talking to your child or grandchild and they really want to be an engineer? So when, when you ask them at the college they hope to go to as an engineering program, they say, who knows, we'll just wait and see. It would, be, it would be nonsense, really foolishness. Whatever happens when we die is even more important. There really cannot be a wait and see attitude. So seek to know Christ. Figure out who he is. In fact, two things that, that may help you with this. First, we have a, a class coming up called Christianity Explored. It'll be online starting in a couple of weeks. It's a simple eight-week class, no grades, just a chance for us to share with you what it means to be a Christian, and give you the opportunity to ask your questions in an environment really safe for seeking out the truth. You can find out more information online. You can sign up there. I really want to encourage you to be a part of this. There is truly nothing more important in life than what you believe about Jesus. With that, later in the fall, actually, we'll be uh, we'll having another class called Discipleship Explored, where we'll be looking at what it means to live the Christian life. Second, if you're a grandparent, 
visiting us and, and want to know more about who God is, we have a gift for you. Again, you can go online. I think below this, the YouTube, there'll be a, a link there, a place to sign up. And we want to send you a book that discusses how you can understand God in light of the troubles of this world. It's called When God Weeps, and it was written by Johnny Erickson Tata, who has lived for the last 50 years in a wheelchair and has this amazing hope in Christ. With that, we'll also send you a pamphlet she wrote on hope and another one called Two Ways to Live that talks about what it means to be a Christian. So, so please go online, sign up for that. Again, I cannot encourage you enough, seek to know Christ. But this idea isn't just for those who, who aren't Christian. If you are a Christian, my encouragement actually is the same. Seek to know Christ. But by this, I mean really know him. Remember, a, a relationship isn't simply about knowing about someone. It's about really knowing them and being a part of one another's lives. Here, here at Lighthouse, we, you know the emphasis that we place on truth, on the scriptures, on on preaching and counseling the word. It's because we believe the Bible contains the very words of God. And yet our hope isn't for, for Lighthouse to be like a religious classroom, but rather that the truths of scripture would deepen your relationship with God, that it would encourage your love for him, your faith in him, and your worship of him. Remember, and I know you know this, but there's a big difference between knowing facts about God and just knowing God. We must not assume that knowledge about someone is a relationship with them. Uh, a while back, we were at spring training for the, for the Dodgers, and Matt, Matt Kemp, he, he was a star at the time, asked CJ what his name was. And CJ said, well, my name's CJ, what's yours? And so even my wife said she was a little bit embarrassed by this. I mean, this man was famous. I mean, he, he couldn't hit a low and away slider, but he was famous. The kids were getting his autograph, and CJ didn't even know his name. But here's the thing, just because I knew more about Matt Kemp, doesn't mean I knew him, like I knew where he grew up and I knew about his baseball career. But we, we don't have a relationship. I'm not calling him when I'm in trouble. I don't text him to see if he wants to hang out. The, the same is true for God. We can't equate knowledge about God with really knowing him. The thing is, often we, we treat our relationship with God like someone famous. We, we know about him, but we don't really know him. We have this kind of vague belief in some far-off deity, hoping he answers some of our prayers, maybe giving us a little bit of help. We, we believe he'll, he'll get us into heaven, and yet though we claim he, he's our heavenly father, practically we see him as this nebulous, transcendent God who we hope occasionally does good things for us. If that's the case, do not be surprised if your hope is weak and your heart is restless. Right? If the source of a content heart is hope, and my hope is in someone I barely even know, my heart will be restless. Getting back to the illustration with Cedia, when, when he was little, he didn't know a lot of facts about me, but he knew me. He wrote me a card for Father's Day, right, where the school has him kind of fill in the blanks. And he wrote, he is the best, I wish. He said he has a car. True. His favorite food is rice. Not even close. I remember when he took me to Jack in the Box pretty much dad of the year. My favorite thing about him is he loves me. I definitely do. So he, he, he didn't know me a lot. He didn't know a lot of facts about me, but, but he knew me. We have a relationship. And when I'm with him, he isn't afraid. He doesn't worry. He knows I love him and I will take care of him. He doesn't know a lot about me, but he knows me. And this is the picture that David offers in the Psalm. It's a, it's a child with his mother. Not a child content because they understand a lot of facts about the world. 
He's with his mom. He feels safe and secure because he knows his mom will take care of him. So we grow in our relationship with Christ by getting to know him better. And my point is not to ignore truth. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, it's just a relationship. In fact, quite the opposite. I would say learn truth about Christ. But why? Like I said earlier, so that it would encourage your love for him, your faith in him, and your worship of him. I was reminded this week by one of the pastors how Beverly Bray took our counseling class, a class where we teach people how to use God's word to encourage and build up others while she was in her 70s. I mean, isn't that awesome? There was a desire in the later seasons of life to learn more about the Christ she worshiped. Why? So she could encourage and share with him with others. Backing up, here's the big picture. We find peace and contentment in a world of instability by turning to the one above it all, really the one in control of it all. We look to Christ because only Christ can make sense of a world in confusion through the truths of his word. We look to Christ because only Christ can give grace and strength to persevere and not just survive, but thrive during difficult times. We look to Christ because only Christ can speak into our suffering and tell us that trials are not some unlucky twist of fate, but part of God's magnificent, even if sometimes painful plan. We look to Christ because only in him can we truly find peace during a pandemic. And of course, we look to Christ because we trust that he will one day make everything right. Let me close with this. My prayer is that we would be like David and we would find rest because we hope in the Lord. He's worthy of our faith and so much greater than anything this world offers. I was reminded of this, uh, that this week when, when I was thinking of a woman from the church I grew up at. She has since gone to be with the Lord, but she kind of lived this really unique life. She was a music major in college, so very talented, uh, was in an internment camp during the war, got a nursing degree and spent time doing that as well as being a flight attendant. The man she married was part of this military group called the Band of Brothers. And their story became this major TV series, which Tom Hanks produced. So she actually got to meet Tom Hanks and even went to some Dodger, watch some Dodger games with him. She and her husband owned a great amount of land. And so honestly, they, they were rich. They traveled the world. They did a lot of uh, philanthropic work. But, but sometime, maybe in her 60s, she placed her faith in Jesus. She became a Christian. I remember one time when I was still an intern at Evergreen, and she came to hear me preach. We can safely assume it was a less than stellar message. But afterwards, she came up to me to talk. And the thing that stands out to me was when she said this with tears in her eyes, I cannot believe that Jesus would die for me. With all that she had, with all that she had done, with all that she had seen, she was amazed at the grace of Christ. And that, beloved, is a better hope than the world offers. It's a real enduring hope, hope in, in the only one who can give it. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for the hope we find in Christ. We thank you that that, that that hope is not affected by a pandemic. We thank you that Christ is so much greater, so much stronger, so much better. And so help us to rest in him. Again, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.